Okay. Ta-da. The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Turning pages here on River Radio for our final show. Coming up, we've got the latest news and views on books. We're chatting with Tilly for her last Tilly's Fiction Addiction. And we're joined in the studio by our favourite guest, Mike Bryan. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Good morning, Julian. How are you? I'm very well, Heather, and good morning to you. And how are you this, this sort of greyish day? Oh, it's a greyish day, but you know, I'm feeling good, even though it's our last I show. I know, I know, but the sun will come out later. It's uh, always yes, out. Indeed. It's always out in my heart. So this is a very special edition of Turning Pages, as it will be our final show at River Radio. is closing its doors at the end of this month. Very sad. Very sad. But it's business as usual for the next hour, as we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy, from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics, because, of course, great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So, if you love reading, or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. And despite this being our our last programme, we do have a bumper-filled hour designed for you this week. Tilly will be joining us for her final Tilly's Fiction Addiction, and she'll be discussing the popular book, uh, The Book Thief, by Marcus Zusak. And we're joined by our favourite author, publisher and all-round publisher, raconteur, Mike Bryan. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Julian. Good morning, (laughs) Heather. Nice to be here. Very nice to be described as your favourite guest, which is... Uh, And I feel at this point I ought to come clean and tell our listeners that uh, I'm actually married to Heather. Uh, So so at times I have no choice about whether I'm being a guest or not. But today I have and I'm delighted to be here. And I was going to say you were my favourite, but now I might change my mind. (laughs) Now we're being honest about it all. It's the last show, so it can all come out now. (laughs) So I all politeness out. I am the most often guest on the show. You are. Maybe not... The most populous, but not no, the most um, popular, perhaps. The most frequent, absolutely, the most frequent. yeah. No, absolutely, we'll finish it there. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And so, well, to continue with the show, rather than the start, we, um, we, ha- we have, as always, been scouring the newspapers to spot these interesting book news for you. Yes, so let's start with that quick roundup of our book stories that we've spotted. Indeed, and congratulations to Sheehan Karan Atilaka and his publisher Short of Books, um, as the Seven Moons of Mali Almeida has won the Booker Prize this year. Yes, well done. Yeah, exactly, congratulations. The Booker judges described it as a fizzing with energy and imagery and ideas against a broad, surreal vision of the Sri Lankan civil wars. And listeners, if you recall, 
all. This was one of two books that Heather and I tipped as being one of the uh, one book that would be the winner this year. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's great and uh, definitely a worthy winner. Indeed, and I should just point out to the listeners that the publisher is actually sort of books rather than short of books. I beg your pardon, uh, but they are shorter books because the book's selling so well. So I think you should get out there and buy one. <laughs> Indeed, well spotted, Mike. Now, I saw a really good thing about Russell Crowe, the film star, who has just donated £5,000 to a bookshop in Norwich. They had started a crowdfunding campaign in last-ditch attempt to save the business. And within six hours of the campaign going live, film star Crowe had donated the sum, which was a third of their target. Wow. So what fantastic that he actually found out about it and then he did something about it. Yes. And it just shows how vulnerable small independent bookshops can be and that we must all do our best to keep them alive by buying our book, books from them. So use them or lose them mm-hmm. is the refrain that we must live by. And that starts for those independent shops we all love but who need our love and business in return. Indeed, indeed. And also, <clears throat> with a slight link, um, um, pubs and alehouses that need our support. Absolutely. Because we have a, a, a new snippet here. There's the 18th century alehouse that inspired George Orwell's essays describing the perfect pub uh, that has been saved from uh, closure. The Compton Arms in Highbury in North London has recently had its licence reviewed and Islington Council received notification that it was a public yeah. nuisance and a danger to health. Now, needless to say, the threat of closure prompted more than 4,000 letters supporting the bar, which is where Orwell, whose real name, of course, was Eric Blair, drank, and where it was said he wrote his 1946 essay, The Moon Underwater, in which he described it as, the pub was always quiet enough to talk, and with barmaids who knew their customers by name. Oh, that's a nice definition for a great pub. Now, the Frankfurt Book Fair, which we will be talking about later on in the programme, has just ended. And I hear that one of the hot books at the exhibition was The Antique Hunter's Guide to Murder, which is a new cosy crime book written by C.J. Miller, the daughter of one of the experts of the antique roadshow, Judith Miller. Oh, I'm looking forward to reading that because I'm a bit of an antique hunter myself. You are. Uh, and uh, I feel privileged that I know Judith. Uh, we used to publish her at uh, Penguin, um, Dorling Kindersley. We did the Miller's Antique Guides. Oh, yeah. So I met her on a number of occasions and she is an absolute delight. So she's on the road... Sh- uh, no, the antique... Antiques Road, road trip. trip. Yeah, uh, no, <laughs> no, the road, road show. show. Yeah, she's on the Antiques Road Show. Yeah. And, she, you know, she's one of the leading people on that. And um, she's very knowledgeable, a really, really knowledgeable so and very likable well hopefully she's given some of that knowledge to her daughter so usually the frizzle from the antique roach on a sunday evening is finding out the value of a recently found trinket and the possibility that what you might have been using as a dog's water bowl is really an ancient japanese ceramic uh, bowl but now it has inspired a much more deadly drama. So the idea came about when C.J. Miller asked her mother what antique she would kill for. That is a great question. Mm. So certainly cosy crime seems to be a popular phenomenon, 
following the success, of course, of Richard Osman with his Thursday murder clubs. So I think we're also an antique loving nation with programmes such as Bargain Hunt and Antiques Road Trip and, of course, the Antiques Road Show. It was seemingly always in the schedule. Uh, certainly the editorial director of Pan Macmillan thought so because he bought the book after just 12 hours of it hitting his desk. And he thought, or she thought, it was a dream combination. And she paid a six-figure thumb, sum, six-figure sum for the book for a debut author. So it's got to go through the publishing schedule. So we believe it'll be out early 2024. And we've got our fingers crossed it'll be a big hit. Indeed. indeed. Well, I I used to enjoy reading all those Lovejoy books. um, Yes. And uh, it'd be great to have a a return to antiques, crime and murder. And and hopefully in a series, you know, that she'll continue with, you know, this will be the first and then we'll have several more from her. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. Let's hope so. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, following on from Cozy Crime, Bob Mortimer's, uh, I beg your pardon, first novel has just been published. Uh, It's called The Satsuma Complex. And it's a cosy whodunit, which is both funny and clever. And as you would anticipate from a national treasure such as he, um, his recent memoir and away published last year spent 43 weeks in the bestseller list. Wow, yeah, really, very good. Um, so we'll be expecting something similar um, to the run of his 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 uh, novel. Now the protagonist is Gary, who's a 30 year old legal assistant living in a housing estate in Peckham, who is. About as dynamic as an abandoned fridge. (laughs) (laughs) When Gary's not at work, he's down at the pub um, watching football or chatting with his next-door neighbour. Into his dismal life comes Emily, a mesmerising woman totally out of his league, who he meets while having a drink with a work contact, Brendan. Just two days later, Brendan is dead, and Gary, who's every bit the clod-hopping reluctant sleuth, finds himself tangled up in a web of corruption. Though his real goal um, is, is... Emily, and it's the will they, won't they story that drives the novel. Uh, I'm always a bit oh, unhappy about uh, famous TV personalities writing books, but I think Bob Mortimer, he's a national treasure, so I think yeah. I'd probably forgive him this one, and it does sound good fun. Now, I want to say congratulations to Magdalen College in Cambridge University uh, for their new library, which has just won the UK's best building by uh, Reba, the Royal Institute of British Architects. It's described as sophisticated and generous, and it's got a triple height entrance hall leading to a central double height reading room, and it's all windows and wood and looks fantastic. It, it really does. And uh, when I was reading um, the, the, the release um, after it won, and I think the, uh, the architect said he had built it for the next three to four hundred years. Well, if you think of all those yeah. colleges, yeah. I mean, yeah. that are still around. Absolutely. I mean, I go into the medieval libraries yes. in, uh, in Oxford and then enjoy being in that yeah. atmosphere. And that would be lovely yeah. in 400 years' yeah. time. People go into that one. Indeed, and it, is, and it, is, it does look stunning. How old say. is the Bodleian? It's, that's a Tudor building. Isn't it, it is, yeah, so absolutely, that's yes. That's 400, yeah. 500 years, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. and it's a real joy to yeah. go into Sir Humphrey's library, and it's all very dark. You can't, um, you can't work there. Ah. Right. But I often think about something like the Bodley, and I wonder how, you know, in those days, if there was some old commodity, you know, that's an ugly new building, I don't yes. like that. <laughs> almost, almost certainly. <laughs> yeah. It'll never last, then, no, no, no. <laughs> 
Uh, now, there seem to be a number of letters um, written by Charles Dickens, written um, uh, that are hitting the uh, auction houses or are being displayed um, for the first time in museums. And there's a, a really good letter that's been found recently which provides uh, an overview of how much uh, Dickens drank. And he was certainly no Scrooge when it came to his wine bill. Um, a letter to Dickens' wine merchant has come up for sale where he has purchased a cask of Italian wine from Carrara, which during the journey um, over <laughs> over from Italy generated a hole and 13 gallons of wine was lost on its way to London. Now, the letter shows how much he loves Carrara wine and doesn't want any more wasted. And, and there's another letter where he talks about having got drunk on Carrara wine while he was there with a woman called Madame LaRue and describing their evening full of intoxicating and rapturous excitement. Now, I don't, yeah, indeed. And I don't know if it was Danny LaRue, but uh, certainly Madame LaRue. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you've, uh, if you've ever read uh, Claire Tomlin's biography of Dickens, but she describes him as, not surprisingly, a heavy drinker. And on his final um, uh, lecture tour uh, of America, which was two years before his death of a stroke at the very early age of 58, he was fortified by alcohol. And on reading days, he would have a fresh cream and two tablespoonfuls of rum at seven in the morning. That's a bit early. Um, yes, and a sherry cobbler, which uh, uh, this particular cobbler is sherry, sugar and slices of orange, which was served with a biscuit, and that came at midday, and then a pint of champagne at three in the afternoon and an egg beaten into a glass of sherry before his evening performance. Well, that's mm. certainly... Um... Quite a rich diet. Yes, <laughs> Uh, so Heather and I have just been to uh, Italy. I don't know whether we were close to Carrara or not, but we certainly drank quite a bit of Primitivo wine while we were there. And we enjoyed it. And we enjoyed it, yes. Um, but uh, on our way back uh, from the from Gatwick uh, in the car, we we switched on radio for extra, extra, and uh, and they were playing. Um, the Diary of a Nobody, it, yes, uh, by the uh, Georgian Whedon Grossmith, um, which I know is, is a book that's been talked about a few times on the radio, but it uh, was fantastic. But the thing that struck me was how much champagne the pooters actually drink. I mean, they're, 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 he's only a modest class. He's a modest class. He gets promoted to a senior class yes, after yes, twenty-one yes, years. Yes, so. yes. Yeah, and it's you know he's it's uh, this is written in eighteen eighty-five or something like that. It's yeah. only eighteen eighties or something, yes. and uh, they seem to be awash with champagne. Jackson Frere seems to be the. Um, uh, the brand that they were drinking. I wonder left, right, whether centre. champagne was really cheap in comparison to other fortified wines and things. You know how oysters were really cheap in yeah. um, in Victorian times. Yeah. So I wonder whether champagne was sort of like the, the cheap. Well, it could be that the duty was, was 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 lower on it because at that time, because because at that time, of course, brandy had a high duty, which is which was what the smugglers yes, went for. Course, but you yeah. never saw them smuggling things like champagne. No, 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 no. So That's all very interesting. Yes, yeah, so, so it's great. So I think drinking champagne all the time is a rather good idea, but. Um, uh, I'm not going to that's what the booters did. Yes, and what did Napoleon say uh, about champagne? In victory, um, you deserve it. In defeat, you need it. Oh. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs>
<laughs> now, on a slightly sober note, we've also got to mention, very sadly, that Peter Robinson died mm. uh, a few weeks ago. Now, uh, Robinson was the crime author whose best-selling detective, DCI Banks, became a much-loved TV drama series with Stephen Tompkinson in the lead role. So Peter was a Yorkshireman through and through, but he lived in Canada. And if he was feeling homesick for his native land, which sort of developed this book series, allowing him to roam across the Dales in his imagination. His first DCI Banks book, The Gallows, was published in 1987. And since then, 27 books have been published in the series, with his final one, Standing in the Shadows, to be published posthumously in April next year. Now, originally Robinson was a poet. I didn't know that. But during a holiday, he picked up a Raymond Chandler his father had left lying around and became hooked on crime fiction. And he said that crime was an excellent way of looking at society. And if you want to know about a country, read its crime writers. Now, during that um, article, I was referring to Peter Robinson as Peter. And that is because actually we know him, don't we? Mike? Yeah, we well, we did, I suppose. He lived in Toronto, and Heather and I lived in Toronto working in publishing. And uh, we met him at the literary festival there. And uh, he came round for dinner on a couple of occasions. And yes. uh, he was a thoroughly nice chap, he and his wife. Uh, and um, it's a shame to see that he's gone. And yes, such very a great, sad. Such a great writer. Yeah, and I liked, he had a little ruse when he mentioned that he did like a good fine wine. Mm. And he did mention in his book that he put in um, a brand of a particular wine. Mm. And then the next week, he actually got a delivery of a bottle through the uh, the door. And he thought, oh, that's a good wheeze. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was forever putting brands of wine and things that he quite fancied into his books. <laughs> just, just in case. <laughs> Yes, yes, wouldn't it be great? And, and uh, he wore um, a Rolex Oyster watch. <laughs> I, I don't think the Maserati actually turned up at the door. <laughs> yes, I don't say. But rest in peace, Peter Robinson. Yes. Yeah. Cheers, Peter. The voice of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. I think Beat comes next on the list. Thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, because great books aren't just on the bestseller lists. Now, coming up, we'll be celebrating the new Booker Prize winner and chatting to our guest, Mike Bryan. But first, Heather's been chatting to Tilly Brogan for her final Tilly's Fiction Addiction. And this week, Tilly's chosen The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak, which is published by Black Swan. Tilly, hi. You are joining us for our very last Tilly's Fiction Addiction. Thank you so much for all your books and joy and excitement about various titles that I would never have read. Honestly, Uh, I've had such a great time. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all ours, but thank you for joining us for one last time. (laughs) So we've got The Book Thief today. That's that's your choice. So Mm -hmm. why have you chosen this book? It's obviously not a new book. It's quite an old book. It's been out for some time now. It's just one of my favourite books I think I've ever read. And I do keep circling back to it. And I was in a bit of a reading slump recently and I saw it on my bookshelf and I thought, you know what, that is a great book. And I think that will be the best book to get me out of this slump. So I picked it up again and I thought, I really want to talk about it one last time. Oh, that's great. I love rereading books. And there are certain books that you just have to keep going back to. I think this is one of them for me, for sure. Brilliant. It was a massive bestseller. It was first published in 2005. 
it's been around for some time. <laughs> but it's a huge bestseller, obviously made more so by the film. What did it give you when you reread it? I associate it with when I was 17, so about seven years ago now. I think, you know, some books have really standout memories for you. So I read this book in sixth form when I was studying English and I used it for a piece of coursework and it was the first piece of writing coursework I did that I felt really proud of. And because I use this book as inspiration, it's got a really nice memory to it. And obviously, I mean, the book in general was amazing and I, I can't wait to talk about it, but it has that nice, like shiny memory and feel of a really proud piece of of academic writing I did so it's always a nice boost to remember that as well excellent so for anyone who hasn't read the book or seen the film how would you describe it in one sentence I would probably say the most unique immersive and will stay with you forever fictional history lesson it does focus on a specific time in history but you're not just reading it from a you know from a history book it's just it's so immersive it really brings you into the time and it's it's just such a fun way of looking at this period of time that's quite a dark period and it's just yes. such an interesting way to look at it it's set in germany and the nazis are on the prowl looking yeah. for anybody that disagrees with their yes. ideology so tell they us about indeed. the the book very generally then so it follows the life of a young girl called Liesl and she moves in with two foster parents in Nazi Germany. So it's set during World War Two, and it sort of focuses on, I think, over about 10 years, Liesl growing up. And as the political situation in the country deteriorates, her foster parents actually end up concealing a Jewish man downstairs. And so the plot sort of follows how this new guest like affects Liesl and her family as well. And it sort of covers really important themes of the time, like censorship, obviously politics, Nazi Germany. And the most unique part is that it's narrated by death. Yes. So death is a narrator. I kind of forgot about that when I picked it up. And it's such a, an interesting way of looking at it. And the author sort of gives death a human-like quality and he becomes a, like a caring figure, which is a very interesting take on death. It's sort of like looking at the situation from above. And it's quite an objective view that follows this specific period in time with a young girl who's growing up. As you've just mentioned death, let's listen to a reading you've chosen from the very beginning of the book where death introduces himself. Here is a small fact. You are going to die. I am in all truthfulness attempting to be cheerful about this whole topic, though most people find themselves hindered in believing me, no matter my protestations. Please trust me. I most definitely can be cheerful. I can be amiable, agreeable, affable, and that's the only the A's. Just don't ask me to be nice. Nice has nothing to do with me. Reaction to the aforementioned fact. Does this worry you? I urge you, don't be afraid. I'm nothing if not fair. Of course, an introduction, a beginning. Where are my manners? I could introduce myself properly, but it's not really necessary. You will know me well enough and soon enough, depending on a diverse range of variables. It suffices to say that at some point in time, I'll be standing over you as genially as possible. Your soul will be in my arms. A colour will be perched on my shoulder. I will carry you gently away. At that moment, you'll be lying there. I rarely find people standing up. You'll be caked in your own body. There might be a discovery. A scream will dribble down the air. The only sound I'll hear after that will be my own breathing and the sound of the smell 
of my footsteps. The question is, what colour will everything be at that moment when I come for you? What will the sky be saying? Personally, I like a chocolate-coloured sky. Dark, dark chocolate. People say it suits me. I do, however, try to enjoy every colour I see. The whole spectrum, a billion or so flavours, none of them quite the same, and a sky to slowly suck on. It takes the edge of the stress. It helps me relax. A small theory. People observe the colours of a day only at its beginnings and ends. But to me, it's quite clear that a day merges through a multitude of shades and intonations with each passing moment. A single hour can consist of a thousands of different colours. Waxy yellows, cloud-spat blues, murky darknesses. In my line of work, I make it a point to notice them. As I've suggested, my one saving grace is distraction. It keeps me sane. It helps me cope, considering the length of time I've been performing this job. The trouble is, who could ever replace me? Who could step in while I take a break in your stock-standard resort-style holiday destination, whether it be tropical or of the ski trip variety? The answer, of course, is nobody, which has prompted me to make a conscious, deliberate decision to make distraction my holiday. Needless to say, I holiday in increments, in colours. Still, it's possible that you might be asking, why does he even need a holiday? What does he need distraction from? Which brings me to my next point. It's the leftover humans, the survivors. They're the ones I can't stand to look at, although on many occasions I still fail. I deliberately seek out the colours to keep my mind off them, but now and then I witness the ones who are left behind, crumbling amongst the jigsaw puzzle of realisation, despair and surprise. They've punctured hearts, they have beaten lungs. Which in turn brings me to the subject I'm telling you about tonight, or today, whatever the hour and colour. It's the story of one of those perpetual survivors, an expert at being left behind. It's just a small story really, about, amongst other things, a girl, some words, an accordionist, some fanatical Germans, a Jewish fistfighter, and quite a lot of thievery. I saw the book Thief three times. Gosh, Suzak has such a way with words, and this book is also about books and words, isn't it? It is, yes. I love a book about books. That's what I just enjoyed, because it's Liesl sort of grows up with the development of her reading as well, doesn't she? This seems to mirror her growth in society. Initially, Lisa can't read and her stepdad actually teaches her to read. And so she starts stealing these books and there's really no need for her to steal these books because she can't read them anyway. It's more of like a power move because she can. And then that's sort of duplicated with the whole idea of Hitler, like dictating what the country could and could read, obviously burning books. And so books sort of become a symbol of free will. It's not so much what the books are about for Liesl. It's more just that she can take them for herself. And it's sort of like a nice juxtaposition between the rise of censorship, being controlled, being told what you kind of can't do, and sort of having that free will and that that identity and going for that yourself and doing something for yourself when you can't really do that in the country. I was fascinated that when this was written in 2005 which is quite a long time ago now. Yes. The whole sort of 
trigger warnings and things like that wasn't wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. So I look at, particularly in America, where books are being banned left, right and centre in yeah. the school system. How do you feel about censorship today? I mean, books have, books have always been banned. And I think even when I was younger, and I remember I was reading Harry Potter and things like that, and someone told me that, oh, this book's banned in this really random state in America because it mentions witchcraft. So I feel like it's, you know, it's always been happening. I do think that it has got a lot worse recently and I I do feel like we're taking a step back and it is sort of a dangerous thing to do for me books explore things that can't necessarily be be explored in like you know in in a different way yeah things like in these super conservative states in America they are banning like LGBTQ plus books like feminist literature which I think are such important themes that need to be addressed and I just think you can you know we're never going to get true equality and we're never going to move on if we just keep banning books that someone doesn't agree with that's where yeah. I stand on it. I think it's yeah. really interesting, isn't it, that looking at censorship from a World War Two perspective, you can mm-hmm. look at it divorced from our own society, but then take lessons from that and see the the damages. Yes, also the course. ways around yeah. it. You know, not allowing ourselves yeah. to, to lose yeah. those books. And I think just books are so important. I know that people maybe don't read as much as they used to, or you know, people read in different ways now. People read online. People don't necessarily pick up books like they maybe did a few times before but I think as long as you're still reading and learning and educating yourself on just once a week reading about a life that's not necessarily yours not how you would live your life it's just so important just be happy and understand the world and not have prejudice and just you know realize that that people are different I think books are a really good way to do that what is it so to to me it's the words and the books and the sort of like the anti-censorship message that I love about this book is there anything else that appeals to you find the period that's set in very interesting I, I studied Nazi Germany at school but it was very much you know workbooks and history lessons it was very very dull very confusing and very dull but I I like this idea that books can plonk you in this like situation in, in this historical time and you can understand it as like a character and I think what this book does really well is it follows Liesl but it also quite a lot of her neighbours are very like pro-Nazi they're part of like the Nazi party then you have Max who is the guy they take in he's obviously Jewish so you get his perspective and I do think that you get that first-hand experience and their emotions and feelings which I think is just a great way of teaching history and feeling like you're actually there. And, you know, it's just a step further to reading it in a history book is like understanding the repercussions of the events that happened and the emotions. I think it's just, it's just great for that. And that's why I really, why I really enjoy this. That's why historical fiction is so good, isn't it? Because it yeah. puts you in the lives of, mm-hmm. of people. Yeah. So many reviews call this book life-changing. Did you, do you agree with that? Well, because I've, I picked it up again <laughs> after so many years. I think, Apart from history, it's just so, it's written so beautifully. I've never really read anything like it. I think it's quite short and there's lots of little like notes and poems the way through, which is just great. It's visually appealing. There's a couple of cartoons in there, lots of poems. It's just such like a unique piece of prose. Yes. And I think it's, I've just never read anything like it that, you know, chops and changes different different ways of, of writing words. It's just, it's so interesting to me. When you reread it, what surprised you reflecting back on the book? I just forgot that death was the narrator and that was quite an interesting in the first few chapters I guess as you'll as you'll read them out they're just so interesting and I think the way that they contextualize where the story's set is quite an interesting way of doing it the first couple of pages are 
about death and how he is human, his life as death. And then he sort of zooms in on on Liesl, this girl that he's going to then follow. And I think I just forgot that that was the narration style and I just haven't read anything like it in so long. There's other ways to write a book and to read a book. So that was the thing that really took me by surprise, I think. It's a great thing. I love the way he's also associated with different colours. So you think of yes. death as dark, but that's yeah, not the yeah. case at all, is it? I mean, death is is, is very human in yeah. this book, which I think is the most surprising thing. And I think I watched a documentary actually a few months ago, and I don't know which country it was set, but it was exploring how death wasn't necessarily like a bad thing. I feel like in quite westernised world, death is quite feared. But in this country where this documentary was set, it was all about how they were celebrating it and they weren't scared of death. They were just enjoying life before death. But I feel like in Western society, it's like a thing to be scared of and to fear. But I think this book definitely flips how you should think of death on its head. Yes, I think that's quite, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's only one thing we're guaranteed, I suppose, apart from taxes, is that we're all going to die. I know, it's taxes and death. It's very commonplace and it's a very, very interesting. So read this book if you want. What are the main tropes of the the book? Oh, definitely history and politics. Unique prose style, age-turning plot lines. It follows a variety of different characters. Liesl is the main one, but it does focus and centre on people that are close to Liesl. There's her friend Rudy, there's her stepdad is quite a large part of it, and obviously Max. And I'd say a gripping look at Nazi Germany. Excellent. And is it better than the film? I loved the film. I feel like the film really brought the book to life. The book is quite visually appealing, but the film is as well. I do remember thinking that I was a bit apprehensive because I was like, how are they going to, how are they going to do death? Are they going to have someone in a Grim Reaper costume? I didn't want it to, to lose that essence, but they did it quite well. To me, the book is, the film is on par. So thank you very much for your final Tilly's Fiction Addiction. And now you are off travelling. So in your suitcase, what yes, are you taking with I'm taking a Kindle because I couldn't be away for eight months without reading anything. So packing my Kindle, which I've not had for a couple of years now, reading probably what I was reading when I was younger and I'm very excited I mean I'm terrified of the long bus journeys but if it gives me time to read I'm very very excited for that brilliant that's that's all you need isn't it (laughs) thank you so much and you can continue to catch up with Tilly's book recommendations on her new Instagram channel which is called paper trails and travel tales dive in to river radio This is Turning Pages, your friendly book programme. Thank you for listening. And if you've only just joined us, we have missed you, but never fear. You can listen again to our podcast from whichever service you choose to use. All you have to do is just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast and listen whenever and wherever you are. Now, whilst River Radio is closing, the, the podcast will remain active for all those looking for a book fix at any time of the day. Yes. So this week we are joined by Mike Bryan, who has been a regular guest of the programme. So Mike is an author, having written Roman Britain and Where to Find It, published by Amberley Press. He also worked for Penguin Books, rising through the ranks to CEO of their Indian and Canadian companies. And he's also an historian of the company. So thank you very much indeed for joining us, Mike. My pleasure, Heather. And uh, we just thought as our last 
our programme. We'd just have a general discussion about books in general. Yes, yes. Now, Mike, um, I thought I'd want to have, thought have a chat about one, what was one of the most momentous events uh, in the book world, which is linked with um, uh, a press release uh, which was confirming the status of um, Salman Rushdie's health recently. As, as you'll remember, he was viciously stabbed as he was about to begin his lecture on uh, artistic freedom in New York uh, recently. Um, his agents now confirmed that he suffered profound injuries, losing the sight in one eye, and uh, after three serious wounds uh, to his neck, one hand is now severely incapacitated because the nerves in his arm were cut. And he also has 50 more wounds in his chest and torso. Um, and uh, you, of course, um, well, not of course, but you were um, a penguin when the fatwa was uh, issued by the Ayatollah of Iran. What, so what, I mean, what was it like in those days? I mean, it must have been pretty hair-raising. Well, it was... Pretty amazing. Um, but first of all, I have to say how sad it is that Salman has been attacked in yeah. the way that he has. Mm. I mean, to, to attack free speech uh, in this way is just awful. Uh, and let's face it, we are talking about one of the greatest writers of the 20th and 21st centuries. His book, Midnight's Children, um, won the Booker Prize. It won the Booker Prize of Booker Prizes, and yeah. then it won the Booker Prize of the Booker Prizes of the Booker Prizes. Yeah, it's I mean, absolutely hailed yeah, it, as the, the best book. The best book ever. And, you know, this is a real genius of a writer. I mean, not all the books are, are, are up to that standard, but he is a genius of a writer. Uh, so when we published um, The Satanic Verses, and there was some brewing uh, noise against some objection and it being banned in certain places, we were actually quite excited because, mm. as we, we've talked about before, I think, banning a book is about the best um, marketing campaign yes. you can do because everybody wants to... Um, uh, wants to read that book. Why, why, why are they banning this book? The same happened with Spike. Yes, indeed. Yes, I was involved with that yeah. one. Um, so we were quite excited because the book was started to sell in unbelievable quantities. But then things turned very dark, mm. and there were burnings of books in um, in various places, including uh, the UK. Public burnings of the, of the book. Uh, Penguin actually had bookshops at that time there were penguin bookshops in york and guildford and places like that and we had bombs going off in them uh we actually had explosions and people being injured there's a bookseller abroad that died yes yeah, so uh so the norwegian publisher was shot and killed yeah. and uh i think the japanese publisher was mm. was stabbed and uh badly injured so um so there were terrible things going on uh, and it turned it turned the penguin offices into uh, fortress penguin, really. Well, I, I recall coming to visit you. I mean, in, in Wrights Lane, and you had all the, all these um, latest airport security apparatus, yeah. wasn't there? There was your bags had to go through the scanner, then you yeah. had to go through the walkway. Yeah, <clears throat> it was it was absolutely like going through airport mm. security mm. to get into um, to get into penguin. And I know a lot of um, uh, offices now have quite a bit of security, mm. but back then it was absolutely unheard of. Exactly, uh, yes. So that was an amazing thing. Um, so, uh, so it went, it went very dark, mm. really. I, I do remember that we, well, of course, we had business cards, and traditionally they were penguin business mm. cards, uh, but we changed them for this period to. Um, Frederick Warren, the publisher of um, Peter Rabbit, Peter Potter, Potter, of course. And we did that so that if we were 
on a plane and we were nabbed in some awful way, um, we wouldn't be instantly recognised as as somebody that might be first in the queue to um, be shot. shot, You know, and it's quite dark, Mm. isn't it? Yeah. So I remember on a slightly lighter note that you were sent a crate of grapefruit. Yes. So uh, we had... um, uh, a distributor in in Israel, uh, Julian will know him, Eri Steinmatsky. Yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, he used to send everybody a, 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 a case of Jaffa oranges or Jaffa grapefruit as a, a little Christmas present, and that arrived, and it set off the um, <laughs> the. <laughs> uh, the explosive um, monitor, and so there was a controlled explanation, uh, explosion of grapefruit in Penguin's car park. Um, so we never really got to see the Eris <laughs> grapefruits that year. But I could quite understand if it was a, if it was a case of prunes that would cause an explosion. But yeah, no, no, absolutely right. But uh, it was grapefruit jam all over all over Kensington, really. Um, yeah, so that was, and then then. Um, Secure. So when we were at book fairs, London book fair and in Frankfurt book fair, uh, we'll talk about in a bit. We had um, XSAS um, security people, and they were huge. I mean, most of them were like ex Fijian um, rugby players. I mean, they'd be six foot six and absolutely massive. And if an alarm went off, they would just clear. We we would be all bundled out. Because uh, the alarms did go off, they, they, they you know, they, there yeah. was a lot of security issues in publishing then, and uh, they would clear our stand in a millisecond, really, just uh, so well trained and really nice guys, but quite unnerving having mm. security people on your stand mm. all the time. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really interesting. We were just talking with Tilly about um, spon- um, banning, banning, banning books. I yeah. think the important thing about free speech is you've actually got to understand other people's point of view mm, yeah. to be able to work out what's good and what's bad mm. um, and if you just say no then yes. you're actually missing the argument aren't you indeed but of course a lot of this was just because down to intolerance and that was that and you know and, and, and simple it's taking um, offense i think yeah. an awful lot of books are banned without people actually um having ever read them well i remember wendy donahue book um in uh, in india and we had a mass demonstration into the um foyer of penguin india right mm-hmm. and actually it was patently obvious that nobody had read the book because actually they'd taken they'd misunderstood it so she wasn't actually right. being negative right yes about yeah. the issue yeah and uh, actually it was rewritten wasn't it mm. but going back to the two um um uh satanic verses wasn't it did I recall wasn't it actually that the <laughs> that seemed to be the muslim countries that react they were actually a bit slow on the uptake where, where did it where did the first thing it wasn't uh, first objection came was it well the first objection was actually in india india that's it, right it, yes. it was in it was in india yes. and um uh, and the first we kind of knew about it was penguin india getting in touch with us saying mm. i think you've got a bit of you, you might have a bit mm. of a problem here uh, this is not going down well uh, in the Muslim community. Mm. Uh, and, um, yeah, so that was the first thing. We did have a, um, a, a you will know, that we did early exports. That's of, right, of, yes. Of best-selling books, which was a, a paperback um, version that was published well before the paperback in the UK. 
uh, and that was to ensure that you could compete with the US published. Right, yes. Uh, and we, uh, and in India, they were called anti-piracy editions, oh, right, because yes. if you came out with a hardback, uh, the pirate publishers would have your paperback out on the streets within mm. seconds. So we we printed this paperback, uh, and it was it was stopped. It it didn't go out. It mm-hmm. was um, it was destroyed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Truly uh, amazing and awful period of time mm. for um, for the publishing industry. And I think our heart goes out to. Uh, Salman Rushdie now, it does. Uh, whilst yes, he's still it does. recovering. It, it, recovering, yes. Yeah, we don't know whether he's still in hospital or not. That no, wasn't no. Uh, revealed in the press. No. Um, but hopefully he gets as, as well as he possibly can. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Exactly. Yes, Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But just going mention when you're going about um, um, banning a book um, gets you um, <clears throat> instant sales, and this going back to Spycatcher, and I was involved in that when I was uh, working for Heinemann um, because uh, that came out. And, you know, if, if Margaret Thatcher hadn't opened her mouth and uh, had banned the book, it would have just failed. It was the most yes, boring book um, yeah. ever written. And I think you're being a bit unfair on boring books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and so of course this thing gets sort of exploded, and uh, what of course what what um, the Thatcher government uh, didn't anticipate because they thought right well this is we've done this and that then we can sit back and you know feel smug about it. Well, of course uh, we were in the um, EU at the time, so what happened was we we had them shipped from Penguin Australia. Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, Heinemann Australia, um, that sent them to um, to Holland, and then we imported them um, legally from Holland into Great Britain. Oh, I see. So you couldn't publish them in Britain. No, we couldn't. But publish, you could sell them. We could sell them. Well, we, we technically no, we couldn't. Technically, couldn't sell them because they, it was banned. But because it was imported, they couldn't. They couldn't stop us. Um, because the importation, so they were just, effectively being sold in Holland. Yes, and uh, exactly. So you, Heinemann UK were not selling to the bookshops. No. Um, and oh, Lordy Lou, all of these thousands have come in every day. Yes, indeed. well, that just showed you how important the international book trade is. Yes, which moves swiftly on to the Frankfurt book. Indeed, Fair, of international, which you international. had just come back from. I have, I have, Heather. It, it was last week, um, and. Uh, the Frankfurt Book Fair well, has been uh, well established, I think, was probably in the 1920s, and it used to be uh, in Leipzig. Um, and then after the war, um, when Leipzig found itself in, in um, the communist half of Germany, uh, it was re-established in Frankfurt in the 1950s, about 1952 or 53, I think. And primarily it's a rights fair, but over the years, and particularly in uh, Mike's time, our time in publishing, um, it, was the, the, it was the flourishing when it became um, uh, more of a trade fair as well. And and so I was out there uh, this uh, this last week, and I have to say, Mike, um, it's a shade of its former self. A shadow of its a former shadow, self. Yes, yeah, so, Mike, you were saying something about it being the biggest fur in the yeah, world? Yeah, so um, it is the biggest uh, exhibit. I'm not sure whether it is but it, now, but it always was, was the yes. biggest exhibition on the planet. Uh, so it had more exhibitors than any other fair. It had more... Um, people on the stands than anybody uh, uh, any other fair and it had more people going to it than any other fair and it w- it was um seven days wasn't it i think it's now down to five <laughs> yes it was it was seven days and there were thousands and thousands of people who would go for it trying to get a room mm. at a hotel in frankfurt during that week uh was very very difficult right. that you 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 as a publisher you would absolutely hang on to as many room um reservations as you possibly could get because 
it was a nightmare if you lost um, lost your reservation. I'm not sure it's so difficult to get. Uh, no, it's not. For, uh, uh, in part because the hotel stock has risen in in the city, yeah. um, but also um, uh, whereas in the past, if you remember, the, in the bad old days of it, I mean, you, you literally hotels would just sell. You said basically, you want to come for one night, fine, but you're paying for seven. Oh yes, that's oh, right. Yeah. And it was, oh oh yes, right. it was. I yeah. mean, it was you that that, that it was sold as a block, <laughs> and there was no no appeal to that. You come, you want one night, yeah, great, you pay for seven. Yeah. Yeah, you bought the package, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, you bought the package. So publishers, what they would do, they would do a cox and box, <clears throat> which actually could help. So maybe somebody would come from a department and they do, say, two or three days, oh, and then they go and yeah. then they swap over. Uh, well, that's all gone, but um, but 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 it, they were heady days, weren't they? Mark? Yeah, they were and, and, we and people, people used to stay miles away, didn't oh, they? Oh, yes. Yes, they'd come in from... Um, Bad uh, Homburg. Bad or... Homburg. Um, yes, and um, even as far as Mainz, I think, yeah. um, they'd come in. In. Bad Homburg was a particularly popular place, um, and uh, uh, Baden, I think, was uh, yeah, they would come all over the place. But it was, it was, as you were about to say, great fun. Yeah, as, as yeah. The, the book smuggler that I now uh, <laughs> think of you as, uh, it was a, a, a wonderful thing. I mean, you had to work very hard. Yes, I you mean, did. It, you were on the stands yeah. from. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you have to be on the stand about half eight in the morning, yes. didn't you? Yeah. And you'd finish at five, six o'clock at yeah. night. Uh, and then presumably had to see your clients in the evening. Well, well you'd have to take out your best clients. Yes. So, so, um, your best customers. Your best care. customers. Yeah. So you'd have to entertain them, which usually meant a cocktail party somewhere. Yes. Um, well, my heart is bleeding. No, no, no. It was terrible. Oh, it was, it was, it was, it was very hard yes, work. So you'd have a cocktail party with loads of your customers and then you'd take out, uh, you know, the honoured um, customer for a meal, um, which would finish about ten o'clock or something. Yes, yes. Um, usually an Italian restaurant. Yes, I mean the, the Italian food was always very good in, in, it, in Frankfurt. It was, uh, and then the British publishers all used to head to the Park Hotel uh, and the Casablanca Bar, and uh, that's where they would um, uh, sort of. Talk about the day, the day, and stay until ridiculous yeah. hours. Oh, and, I mean, I think you, you, yeah, dinner would finish about 10. Yeah. So you, I mean, the earliest you would get to the Casa, um, as we used to call it, the Casablanca bar, would be around about 11. Uh, and then basically, I think they'd shovel the last of us out at about three in the morning. Um, unless unless somebody went to the umpire bar, there was a whole oh, people of yeah. people who would go to the umpire bar, which was basically if you did that, you weren't going you, were, to, you weren't going to bed all no, night. You didn't you? bother. Uh, and the Americans uh, had their place as well. They were at the Frankfurter Hof. That's right. They, they were yes. And uh, uh, I, I don't think they ever did the umpire bar. But no, because I, I think I think uh, I was told years and years and years ago the, the 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 bar at the Frankfurter Hof was was the British bar, but then they remodelled it and reduced the size for some reason. So then uh, another home was found, which was the Casablanca Bar. Now, the great thing is, uh, uh, Mike, being a chum of mine, uh, Penguin's headquarters, if you like, was, was the Park Hotel. And, uh, and uh, Mike, um, uh, the, the company, would book as many rooms as they could, and then they would book the Kaiser Suite. <gasps> and Mike would share the Kaiser Suite with probably three or f- two or three, three or so other colleagues. Uh, well, it, it, yeah, two other colleagues. Yeah. yeah, and the purpose being was that it had a huge room, and the parties, and I would get invited to these Cocktail parties it was wonderful. It was. Kaiser suite. It was. Yes. It was. Yeah. They, they, they they were, yeah. Grand old days. They were grand they? old days. Yes. Um, but you did work hard. And the thing, of course, um, we were a little younger than uh, we are now. But you, but as Mike said, you know, you had to be on the stand at um, at uh, 
eight thirty in the morning, and it didn't matter how wrecked you were; you had to be on the stand. Yeah, you had to be on the stand, didn't you, you, and you had to. So what you had to do was get a really, really good greasy fried breakfast in the hotel before you left, and that set you up. Then you pop round to see John Blake and John Stakovich at the <laughs> yeah, Trans World, who would then give you a little nip of something to get. You. So by eight o'clock, you popped in to see them. Yeah. John said, "Oh yes, I've got something for you," and you'd have a nip of something. I can't remember. Well, it was it was, I, it was either Jägermeister or Fernie Branca. Fernie Branca. Yeah, yep. it was a very dark, disgusting yes. liquid brew. And off we would go to our stand, fortified for the morning, and away we go. And it was non-stop, wasn't non-stop. It? Yeah. So it sounds as though Charles Dickens had a thing going for <laughs> oh, yeah. him. Then he no, did, he, he'd he have loved the, it. He set the pace. I think. He, yeah, yeah, he, he, he would have absolutely yeah, loved he it because yeah. yeah. he started yeah. the morning with the rum. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but I, 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 we would. would um, in those days, we were in Hall Four, um, where, which was uh, which was when I started uh, in export, and it was the new it was the newest hall. But in those days, uh, smoking was allowed. Well, you went in, and the Hall Four had um, one ground um, first and second, and but there was no natural lighting, and the ceilings were not overly high. And you you come home, and I remember I'd open my suitcase, and this billow of smoke almost would come out. You, the suits would have to go to the dry cleaners. Well, that unusually, I think I don't know, maybe usually, but uh, they had cigarette girls going round the aisles, yes, uh, uh, going cigaren, cigaretten. Uh, so, because of course, if you were on the stand, you couldn't get off the stand no. really to, to go and do very much so uh, there'd be people bringing around yeah. teas and coffees yeah. and things but <clears throat> the cigarette girls cigarettes yeah, yeah and you could yes and that was, and, and people and, and the things that we used to pack um, and I remember it was a hotter you, you, we packed our own um, ashtrays and you took the ashtrays and they were on the tables and, and that was it and, and, and yes of course you could, yes, definitely you could them bad yeah. old days they were yes, yes that's terrible yeah. Yes, I do remember that. So we've talked about the lows of publishing in terms of um, censorship and um, and harm. We've talked about the highs, obviously, with yes. Frank Fair Book Fair. So I just want to talk about a book now, and it's got to be Harry Potter. Right. Because it has been the most phenomenal bestseller that is still there, right at the very pinnacle of sales, even today. And, of course, it's 25 years old wow. this year. yes. That's Can amazing, isn't it? it? Yeah. That, yes. That, that is, is amazing. It's in the pantheon of, 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 of literature, and it's there, it's embedded, and, you know, it's 25 years. Well, I think the, the great thing about writing a best-selling children's book is there's a whole wave of new children every year yes. Yes. Uh, who hit the reading age that um, that you can do it. Yeah. So so really, for those kids, it's a brand new book some, uh, for them to get into. Until it goes out of fashion, I can't see it going out of fashion. It's going to be a perennial bestseller. Isn't yeah, it, mm. it isn't. And do you remember when it first, were you involved, either of you involved in the publishing of uh, well, luckily, Harry luckily, Potter? Luckily I was, because uh, Penguin were the international sales uh, operation for Bloomsbury, who published the book. Uh, so uh, I had the delights of selling it um, on behalf of Bloomsbury around the world, and it was just astonishing. And and we were very strict about publication dates. I mean, the, the you, you know how uh, certain books have a restriction on them on, on when you can mm. sell them. Yes. Well, it was down to the last second that it was done uh, in international. And that meant that some places, um, they, were, they were selling it at three o'clock in the morning because uh, of the 
date changes, the mm. time changes. Right. Time and changes. they'd open yeah. their bookshops. And they'd open their bookshops yeah. at three o'clock in the morning and able to, to hit the time that it was going on sale everywhere in the yeah. world. Yeah. And there'd be queues outside the bookshop Cue- at three mass- o'clock in the massive morning. Massive queues. Well, massive my, queues. my involvement wasn't exactly, I don't think we had people queuing up, but uh, I, um, uh, in my uh, career with, as a freelancer, worked for Francis Lincoln. Yeah. And Francis Lincoln had the agency um, for Cover to Cover, which was... Um, the audio books. Which is the audio books. And um, uh, we had the Harry Potter um, audio books um, read by Stephen Fry. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And, and it was so funny, though, but uh, we were having, we were at a conference Conference, which was at the Isaac Walton Hotel up in Derbyshire, and um, we we were talking about this, and there was myself and there was uh, two other friends who were freelancers, Jill and Stuart, and they were talking about Harry Potter. We had no idea who Harry Potter Potter was because it was just at the beginning of this. Well, of course, these these we we made out like bandits on those uh, days, <laughs> and the cover to cover was was run by Helen Nickel, um, who no longer is alive. Lovely, lovely lady. Um, in fact, she was the sister in law of, um, of of Francis Lincoln. But uh, we, so we, I, I had uh, basked in a little bit of that glory myself. So it was great fun. Yeah, yeah. it was just. Amazing, yeah, and it still is the gift that keeps yeah, on giving. Yeah, yes, indeed. Because I know Bloomsbury are putting out um, four new editions right. um, this year, Celebra- right? Sort of celebrating which is them, celebrating, um, which they're basing it on each of the different houses. Ah, so that's right. why you can have four different editions because yes. you can yeah. decide. You can have a Gryffindor edition or, or a Slytherin. Slytherin. Yes, right, right. Can we remember what the other ones are? Um, Ravensclaw um, comes um, to mind. What's the other one? We're missing one. Somebody somewhere. Someone. Well, somewhere. phone in yeah. and tell us what the other, the third one was. Huff and puff. Huff and puff. Oh, yeah. well Huff and puff. Oh, yes. Gosh. Yes. Indeed. So yeah, so that was amazing, and we were talking to a good friend of ours who was actually the sales director. Oh yes. Of yes. Bloomsbury. Um, just a couple of weekends ago, and we were reminiscing over the the difficulty of trying to get adults and children reading the same book. Do you remember when it was first yeah. launched? Mm. It was done in two different covers. Right, yes. And they yes, would send, and he sent us very kindly uh, an edition of the first hardback. Right. But he said, read it and pass it on. And you know, we did. Right. You know, being the good friends we did, mm. we had this first edition of um, the first Harry Potter, which is now worth thousands, oh, yes. of tens of yes. thousands of yes. pounds. Yeah. Yeah. We read it, and I can't even remember who we gave it to. No, it's very disappointing. <laughs> yes, and hopefully they have passed it on rather than cashed in. <laughs> well, if you have passed, now, pass, yeah. <laughs> cashed in. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so yes, uh, 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 to our listeners, uh, look on your shelves to see if you've got a first edition. You may have a very valuable... That's a good point. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. So that is, I'm afraid, oh. we've come to the end of the very final... Oh. Uh, turning turning pages. pages so well it's been a blast it, it has, has been, been a blast. 18 months i think so as in the true tradition books we're recommending today oh yes heavens above Ooh, absolutely yes. so we've got the antique hunter's guide by uh Hunt, sorry antique hunter's guide to murder by cj miller now that's going to be published by pam mcmillan but it will be next year yeah. sometime uh, then we have the gallows by peter robinson published by harper collins bob mortimer's that satsuma complex published by gallery uk then we have uh, 
Shihan Karuna Tilaka, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, published by Sort of Books. The Book Thief by Marcus Zuzak, published by Black Swan. A Roman Britain and Where to Find It by Mike Bryan, published by Amberley Press. It's been really great doing this show over the past 18 months and we really hope you've enjoyed joining us. We've certainly enjoyed your company and comments and it's been great to hear how many of you have been inspired to buy books following our recommendations. Absolutely. So I just want to say a quick thanks to you, our listeners, and also to Sam Setti and the River Radio team for hosting the uh, the programme, and to all our radio presenter colleagues whose shows we've also enjoyed listening to. Thank you to our regular contributors, Tilly Brogan, Mike Burton, Acker the Casual Poet, Chantelle from the Little Bookshop in Cookham and Ali Jinks from the Wallingford Bookshop. And we really hope that you will continue to support your local bookshops because if we don't support our local shops, then they will just disappear and our lives will definitely be the poorer for it. And of course, thank you, Mike, for joining us today. My pleasure. So often in the past, uh, you've been great company. And uh, of course, Julian, thank you for joining me every every week too. It's been my absolute pleasure. Well, can I say thank you on behalf of all the the listeners for such a brilliant uh, show. You two have been absolutely Aww, spectacular. Well, thank you. Thank That's very you. Kind. Thank you. So, one final time, goodbye. 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 In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. (laughs) 